0: Before we begin our study this evening, we need to make sure that we are in fellowship. Uh, So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to uh, utilize 1 John 1.9 if necessary, which means to admit or acknowledge any known sin in your life to God the Father in the privacy of your priesthood in silent prayer, at which time we are instantly forgiven of our sins, cleansed of all unrighteousness, We recover the filling ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, so that we can resume our walk by means of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we have the privilege and opportunity to gather together this evening. We thank you for the fact that we have a nation that provides us with and recognizes that we have this freedom. Father, we thank you that we have forefathers who have been willing to make the ultimate sacrifice to purchase our freedom on the field of battle. Father, we thank you for those who have gone before us in the history of the church who have also shed their blood, that we might have the completed canon of Scripture before us, that we may have adequate translations of your word, that we may read your word consistently in our own lives, that we may be refreshed by it. Father, we thank you for the way you have provided for this congregation, for this church, for this meeting place. And we ask that you would continue to provide for us and prepare the way for us to have a future Place to meet. Father, we thank you for the opportunity just to come and hear your word taught, that we might have our souls refreshed, have the orientation of our mental attitude refocused, and that we might be challenged by your word. We pray that we would be responsive to that challenge. In Christ's name, amen. We're in the second chapter of Revelation, slowly making our way through the seven letters to the seven churches. We've noted that these seven letters, these short postcards, are actually critique sheets. They are congregational evaluation reports given by the Lord Jesus Christ to these congregations in order to prepare them eventually for their evaluation before the judgment seat of Christ. These seven short evaluation reports were all given to historical churches, historical congregations. And they were posted initially to an angel who served like an officer of the court whose role was to record what was transpiring in the life of that congregation as well as to execute whatever judgments came at the direction of the Savior of the churches, the Lord of the churches, the Lord Jesus Christ. I pointed out that each of these Epistles, with a few exceptions, follow a certain pattern. First of all, there's an opening address or commission that the, each one is addressed to the angel, the angelos of the church, whether it's at Ephesus or uh, Smyrna, uh, Thyatira, Pergamum, Sardis, uh, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So there's an address which opens each one. This is to a historical congregation. Then there's a citation related to a character attribute of the Lord Jesus Christ. A character attribute of the Lord Jesus Christ based on what we saw in chapter 1. We must understand that chapters 2 and 3 unfold from the context of chapter 1. When John was on Patmos, he heard a loud voice behind him. He turned to look at that loud voice, and there he saw one like a son of man walking in the midst of the seven lampstands, and then he described him. And those descriptions then show up in the uh, character part of each of these epistles, and it relates specifically to what comes afterwards. There's one exception, one of the... Uh, letters to one of the churches brings in new, a new aspect to the person of Christ, but six of them relate specifically to chapter 1. Then there's a commendation, a rehearsal of praise for spiritual advance. Now, two of the congregations have nothing positive, uh, nothing praiseworthy, so this is missing from two of the congregations. And then fourth, there is a condemnation. Section. This is a warning about a spiritual flaw or problem within that congregation that must be addressed. And again, there are two that have no condemnation sections. Following that, there is a correction, a call to remember the way things were, remember what you were taught, and a challenge to repent, which means to change your mind. Now that you have been confronted with what the Word says, with what the Lord of the church says to the church, There's a challenge to do something about it. Then there's a call to listen. Let those who have an ear listen. And in the Bible, listening isn't simply having your your auditory uh, nerves stimulated. It is to pay attention and apply that which has been taught. The seventh aspect is a challenge which has to do with the overcomer. Now, we will probably spend a whole night just trying to figure out what an overcomer is. There's a tremendous amount of debate, and this is a what it comes down to is a great divide. How you understand the overcomer says a lot about what you think about sanctification, what you think about grace, and how you understand the gospel. What's interesting when you study theology, and what I always enjoyed, is that a theological system is really or should be a seamless whole. And unfortunately, what you find in so many pulpits, so many congregations, is that people are building patchwork quilts rather than an integrated, consistent theology. And most pastors don't even have enough training to figure out what this means. And so they teach they just get uh, a number of commentaries, they work their way through them, and they pick this that sounds good and that that sounds good, and they don't realize that that these men who write commentaries are writing from within certain theological, theological systems or theological grids so that everything that they say... Fits within a certain system. That is why they, we talk about systems of theology. And you have Reformed theology, which is Calvinistic and tends to be lordship. You have Pentecostal, Charismatic theologies. You have Wesleyan theologies, Lutheran theology, Roman Catholic theology. And I think one of the uh, one of my favorite courses when I was went back to seminary to work on my doctorate was taking theological systems, because you begin to get into the logical underpinnings of these theological systems to realize that, that there are certain things that go together. And it's true in theology, it's true in churches, as much as it is in any other area of life, that, that uh, birds of a feather flock together. And so that, what that means, the way that applies for us, is that there are certain people that have certain theological understandings and you can group them into these into these systems and for our concern one of the major issues here is going to be the division between those who have a lordship orientation versus a free grace orientation and this is not only applies to how you understand the gospel but it also understand uh, or applies to how you understand what takes place at the judgment seat of Christ. So these are not issues that are somehow confined to the ivory tower of uh, seminary or theological discourse, but they have to do with very practical issues of how you apply these things in your day-to-day uh day-to-day Christian life. Now last time we started the first this first epistle, and it's addressed to the church in Ephesus. And this, these seven churches are located in the Roman province of Asia Minor, which is located on this western side, this western shore of, of uh, what is modern Turkey, what we sometimes refer to as Asia Minor. Revelation 2.1 is addressed to the angel, that is the Angelos, of the church of Ephesus. And the author, of course, that is behind this is the Lord Jesus Christ and states that this is to be written to the angel of the church of Ephesus. So last time we started by reviewing some history on Ephesus. And I pointed out that Ephesus was one of the largest cities in the ancient world. There's some debate now as to just how large it was for years Uh, The literature said that uh, Ephesus was probably around 250,000 But it turns out that the document that that was based on An ancient Roman uh, writer Had been misinterpreted, mistranslated And so now there's uncertainty However, if you examine just the size of the uh, (coughs) modern remains Of the city of Ephesus I think it's uh, at least as large, if not larger Then Corinth, and Corinth clearly had a population of between 250,000 and 300,000. So this was a large community. It sat in a harbor that was gradually being silted in. In fact, in the ancient world, they came along and dredged it a few times. But the Caister River came down and and dumped a lot of silt in the harbor, and this was a continuous problem. But during the first century, it, it was still a very active port, it also, the city of Ephesus also sat astride both a northwest route highway and an east-west highway. So it was a place where uh, ships would come in, unload their goods, and then they would be taken north or south, or they would be taken east. And this was, this meant that Ephesus was a melting pot, sort of like Houston. It had all kinds of people there. It had a uh, I had lots of religious systems there. The primary religious system there, as we saw last time, had to do with the worship of the fertility goddess uh, Artemis or Diana. But Artemis of the Ephesians was very, very famous. So we did background last time on Ephesus. Here's a picture showing the overall plane, much of that in the distance. As you see, this lighter green in this area here would have been where the Aegean C came up to the port of Ephesus in the ancient world. Now, the city of Ephesus lies about six miles from the Aegean. This is a reconstruction of the uh, ancient statue of Artemis, not very attractive. She was called the Mini Breasted Goddess because she was the goddess of fertility. And the legend was that her idol just dropped out of the heavens. And they constructed a temple around this idol. And this temple was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And each of the columns in the temple was allegedly paid for by one of the kings in the ancient world. And there were hundreds of thousands of pilgrims that would come from all over the Greek Empire, later the Roman Empire, in order to uh, be involved in the worship of the idol idol for Artemis. And so this was one of the major trades there was selling all kinds of paraphernalia related to the worship of Artemis, the Ephesians. And her her symbol was a bee. The bee was an image that stood for fertility in the ancient world. And so the silversmiths made all kinds of different uh, pens and accoutrements made out of, of of silver. And the response to the gospel was so great in Ephesus. The response to Paul's preaching of the gospel was so fantastic that it threatened their whole livelihood. That This episode that's given in Acts chapter 19 tells us something about the impact of the gospel there. And so when we come to understand what's going on in Ephesus 50 years later, we must realize that Paul didn't just see a handful of people come to... Uh, saving understanding of the gospel when he was there in about 61, 62, 63 A.D. This, he had, it had a profound impact that affected the culture in a deep way. Now, Acts 19 was about where we stopped last night. We went a little beyond it, but I want to go back have a little review. There are three key events developed by Luke in Acts chapter 19. The first, as I pointed out last time, was the case of the misbaptized Baptists. These were the disciples of John the Baptist who showed up in Ephesus, and Paul asks them the basis of their baptism, and they had never heard about Jesus. They had only heard about John the Baptist and his baptism. And so Paul then gives them the gospel, corrects their understanding, gives them the next stage of, rev- of, uh, of revelation and then he then he baptizes them with christian baptism this is in uh, acts chapter 19 in the first 10 verses and notice ver- what we find in verse 9 aside from this he continues to teach in the synagogue for 3 months before he's finally uh, asked to leave and then he taught for another two years at least, in the school of Tyrannus. And we're told in verse 10 that this continued for two years so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the, literally it should be the message, of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. This means that what Paul was doing in that school was he was not only teaching doctrine, but he was training men to go to the various cities and towns around Uh, Ephesus and all through Asia to take the gospel and to start churches and this shows the tremendous missions outreach that took place this is a foundation for the church of Colossae Laodicea and all these churches that are mentioned at the beginning of Revelation and this is a fundamental aspect of any local church ministry is to train people to be involved in out what is typically called outreach evangelism and missions and this is the basis for how a church grows in 2 weeks we're going to have a congregational meeting meeting and that night i'm going to weave in some things from these first two chapters or from chapter 2 and 3 in revelation but i'm going to have sort of a state of the church address presenting what our vision is for West Houston Bible Church. And part of that vision is that that the way a church grows, a healthy church grows is because the members are excited about what's happening. They're excited about what they're learning. They they're inviting their friends to come to church. You know, there's a lot of different ways in which churches grow today. And you can you can look at all the Madison Avenue techniques, all of the advertising, salesmanship gimmicks that come down the pike, and they're used. You can drive down any any freeway in Houston, and you will see the fruits of that on the billboards all over this city. But just because a church has a large number of people does not mean that the method they use is right. That doesn't mean that God's blessed it. It simply means that they've managed to effectively utilize the techniques of the world around us to develop a large crowd in their group, whatever it may be. And a long time ago, a friend of mine told me that anybody who has a salesmanship ability can gather a large number of people and can raise enormous amounts of money, and it can all be done in the flesh. Just because you attract a large crowd and have a lot of resources it does not mean That you're doing anything in the power of God the Holy Spirit or that God is the one who's building the church. And when you look at the scriptures, there's a difference, uh, in how you do things. And this was something that I remember back in seminary days. Tommy Ice and I used to have major battles in some of the, some of our courses over and with ...talking afterwards with other students, is trying to convince men that it's not only what you do, but how you do it. Methodology isn't neutral. A right thing done in a wrong way is wrong. And the Bible gives us clear methodology for what we are to do as a church. And genuine church growth that takes place under the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, takes place as people follow the pattern that you see in the book of Acts, and that is through personal evangelism, teaching the Word, where people are genuinely excited and enthused about what is going on in their own spiritual life and are willing to share that with people, either in just presenting the gospel or in uh, just inviting them to come to church, and there's nothing wrong with that. And that is how uh, you get solid church growth because then people are coming because if, if you're the one communicating what's going on here at West Houston Bible Church, your focus is going to be this is a place where you can learn the Bible. It's exciting. It's not trivial. It's not just going someplace and singing a lot of songs and feeling good, but you're going to hear the Word of God and learn to think biblically, and that is exciting. It's the content that makes it exciting. It's not all the you know, dog and pony show that surrounds it that makes it exciting. And see, that's what, what's going on in most churches. And in a lot of churches, you get uh, really a bait-and-switch technique. You come for the fun, you come for the show, you come for the emotion, but then we're going to try to get you to go to serious Bible study. And it never works. And so they never really develop serious Bible study. And... The Apostle Paul certainly didn't do it that way and didn't dumb down his presentation so that it would be acceptable to quote seekers. That's the big terminology. You read the church growth literature, they're always talking about seekers and unchurched Harry and unchurched Mary. What's interesting is the church, one of the two or three churches in the in the country that laid the foundation for this whole modern church growth movement was a church up in Chicago called Willow Creek. And a few years ago, there was a sociology uh, student working on his Ph.D. at Northwestern University who decided to write his dissertation on the dynamics of Willow Creek. And Willow Creek at that time was the largest church in America, had 15,000 members. And the pastor was well known. And there were 300 pastors on staff. Imagine that. They had more pastors on staff than we have in the church. And so this guy got an internship at Willow Creek for a year and he was not really doing it. He wasn't doing a theological evaluation of the church. That wasn't his focus. He was just doing basically a sociological analysis of this church that had grown from two or three people in the period of about seven or eight years to about 15,000. What were the dynamics that brought that about? So he describes all the different things that they did and all the different things that they had going on in the church. And the last part of the dissertation, he begins to give some evaluation. And one of the things that came out was the fact that the church was really big on creativity. We have to be creative. We have to come up with ways to attract people. We don't really want to offend anybody. We just want to be positive. You know, this is just the whole idea. Let's not be negative. Of course, you know, the Bible is extremely negative. You know, you're a sinner and you're going to hell. That's not a positive message. You know, it's like back in the 70s, the popular pop, popular psychology book was, I'm okay and you're okay. And the Bible says, I'm not okay and neither are you. But that's not the message that attracts people. We all want somebody to stroke us and tell us we're doing good. Well, they had a staff of 300 people and according to this research, the sum total of systematic theologies owned by those 300 pastors was what? Take a guess. 300 pastors, how many do they have? You got it. Zero. They didn't own one systematic theology in a whole bunch. Not only that, there wasn't one guy in the whole bunch who had a degree from a Bible college, Bible institute, or seminary. We don't want those guys. They're too restricted. They, they studied the Bible. It sort of limits what they'll do. See, the idea was, is the same thing. They never got as extreme as John Wimber. But John Wimber founded what was called the Vineyard Movement. And uh, he used to say, well, we'll just let anything happen. And later on, we'll figure out if it's from the Holy Spirit or not. So, I mean, this is just a wacky state in which we live. But that's not how Paul did things. Paul taught the Word. And so the Word went out throughout all of Asia from this congregation in Ephesus. They taught the Word and they trained people. It wasn't just a matter of teaching them doctrine. It wasn't just a matter of teaching them the truth, but it was a matter of hands-on application. So you think you have the spiritual gift of pastor or teacher or evangelist. Great. Let's go do some of it. Let's go uh, find some opportunity where we can go to a town or a village and we'll look for an opportunity where we can present the gospel. And we can begin to uh, share the gospel in some way, some form with the people there. And then from those uh, converts, we'll establish a church. Anyway, I've started preaching getting getting sidetracked here. The church grew, and the church grew a tremendous amount. And if you look down to verse 20, that after the episode with the uh, sons of Sceva and the Jewish evangelists, we're told that it had such an impact on the culture that they recognized that they couldn't assimilate Christianity to their old pagan practices and the demonic uh, witchcraft and occult methodology that they had. So they came and they destroyed all their um, uh, magical uh, tools and implements and their books. And uh, verse 19 says a total of 50,000 pieces of silver. Uh, point of application here is when you teach the gospel, it changes the culture. It, it has an economic impact. Think about that. Tremendous economic impact. All those, all those occult book dealers and uh, traders and talismans and superstitious things certainly saw a cut in their business. And that's what the next episode talks about. But in the midst of this, the Holy Spirit says, in verse 20, so the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. Paul is not having a small impact in Ephesus. It's such a great impact that in the next episode, starting in verse 21, there's a major riot that takes place in Ephesus because the silversmiths are losing major, uh, a major amount of business. And a certain silversmith named Demetrius, in verse 24, uh, began to call all the silversmiths together and tell them that we, we let this guy continue to teach this that these these idols are not gods, then we're going to lose all of our business. So see the 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 truth, the gospel doesn't just change people's. Lives. It doesn't just change people's hearts. It's not just a private thing. It changes the culture, changes the dynamics of the economics in the, in the society. It changes their laws. It has an effect on everything as it works itself out as be, believers begin to apply doctrine. So there's a, my point in all of that is simply to emphasize the fact that Ephesus had a tremendous foundation Now, as time went by, Paul left not long after the riot, and he went on his third missionary journey to Macedonia and Greece. And with him were also traveling Timothy and some of the others that went with him. Luke joined him along the way, and they came back. Paul and his entourage came back by ship, and Paul didn't want to be distracted with a full stop at Ephesus. So he stopped at down a little further down the coast at a town called Miletus and there he called for the elders of the church in Ephesus to come and visit him. Now here's another shot of the where the ancient temple of Diana was located. And he gathers these elders together and I don't have a slide on the verse in uh verse 27. This would be Acts 20:27. 20, or um, Actually, it's earlier we see that he called the elders together. That's about verse uh, 17 and 18. From Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. That's the Greek word presbuteros, And it is in the plural that there were numerous elders in Ephesus, which indicates there were numerous pastors in Ephesus. And then when you get down to verse 28... Paul says, therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock. So these were the leaders of the congregation. And they were to watch. They were to pay attention to certain things and to, in their responsibility of oversight over the congregations there. Take heed to yourself and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. There's another word. He's talking to Presbyteroi. That's plural. And he says, the Holy Spirit has made you episkopoi. Each one is an episkopos. That's the singular. They are bishops. That's the word that was translated bishop in the uh, old King James, and it literally means an overseer. Now, each of these terms looks at the same person from a different vantage point. The elder focuses on, his, on the, this individual in terms of his spiritual maturity the episcopos term looks at him in terms of his authority and his administrative uh, role as the leader of the congregation and the term shepherd which is a verb here indicates his function he, he primarily functions in shepherding or that is to feeding and leading the congregation through the teaching of the word so once again, my point is simply this. In Ephesus, you have a, you have a crowd of elders, which means there is more than one congregation. You've had a huge impact of the gospel. You've got several congregations, you've got several pastors, and they're all teaching the word. You don't just have one church per locale. Now in verse 29, Paul gives his warning. He says, For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. So there is a warning, a prophetic warning, that what's going to happen here in Ephesus is there are going to be those who come in and are going to distort doctrine and are going to teach the wrong things and seek to lead the congregation astray. In verse 30, Paul says, Also from among yourselves... Men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. So they will rise up from among those very pastors. There will be some of them who will begin to get confused, begin to teach some false doctrine. Some of these men are going to think it's more about them than it is about what they're teaching. And they're going to make an emphasis out of of themselves. This is one of the great dangers in the pastorate, I see this all the time. I work with all kinds of pastors and I've worked in all kinds of, of uh, situations. And there is always a tendency, whenever you have one man standing up in front of a group of people, for that individual to become seduced by arrogance and begin to think it's about him and his personality and what he has done to build that congregation. And so you always see this problem of a bunch of little tyrants developing over churches. And I see it all the time that these pastors lord it over their congregations, and some of these are going to teach false doctrine. Sometimes you have men who turn into, to uh, basically little Caesars over their congregation. Others not only do that, but then they go on to teach uh, to teach false doctrine. The word here that is translated perverse things is a Greek word, diastrepho, which means to twist, to turn, to distort, or pervert something. And so this is the warning that they will come in and begin to twist doctrine. So there has to be someone guarding the sheep, someone watching the gate, someone willing to exercise discernment to protect the congregation. Now the reason I'm emphasizing this is because this, the year that Paul says this is in about 61, 62, 63, and when we get to Revelation, we're 30 years later, and you see the fact, the influence that this warning has had on that congregation down through those years. Verse 31, Paul says, "Therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone." night and day with tears notice the passion that is present in this statement to the point of tears paul is warning the congregation and this is part of the responsibility of a pastor teacher is to warn the congregation about the false doctrines that are out there about the 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 various nuances of doctrine that can be distorted and can lead the sheep astray the truth must always be taught in contrast to the errors that are present in the day, errors that are both within the church and errors that are outside the church, in order to make sure people understand. I can't tell you how many times I have stood in the pulpit and taught something without reference to anything else, and the next thing you know, somebody comes forward and they start talking about how great some pastor is, and I said, well, I just spent the last six weeks teaching about why the basic doctrine this guy teaches is wrong, and they don't have enough Brain cells functioning to recognize that that's who I'm talking about. And so sometimes it's important to, especially if it's a nationally known figure, someone who is well known, well published for their position, to identify them by name because they've hung their hat on this, on a particular, on a particular doctrine. And this is what Paul did. He warned people against what was going to happen. At the end of his Time with the elders, with the pastors from Ephesus, he, he concluded by saying, So now brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up, that is to, to edify you spiritually, to strengthen your soul, to advance you spiritually. It is the message of God's grace that is at the core of spiritual growth. And to give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So what we see here is that it's not just enough to be saved. Inheritance is something that goes beyond the reception of eternal life. And it has to do with the additional rewards that God has for the believer who advances to spiritual maturity. And it's clear from this very statement that Paul taught that while he was in Ephesus. And they were fully aware of this particular teaching. Now that gives us some background in Ephesus. So the Lord Jesus Christ addresses this church at Ephesus. Now not only did Paul spend three years there, but later on we know that, that Timothy became the pastor there. This is why Paul writes the first epistle to Timothy. Paul is in prison in Rome at that time, and Timothy is the pastor. And then we know from the uh, second to last verse in Hebrews that Timothy was put in prison and was arrested. So somebody else was obviously pastoring in Ephesus. There were other congregation, other pastors that were there. And then somewhere in the mid uh, 60s, the Apostle John moved to Ephesus and he had a ministry among the churches in Ephesus. But he wasn't the only only pastor that was there. What were they doing for teaching when? Uh, John was imprisoned on the Isle of Patmos. My point is that there were numerous pastors, so you would not have uh, someone writing to the pastor of the church of Ephesus. There was no single pastor. So that doesn't quite fit the interpretation for Angelos. And this takes us back to what I spent a certain amount of time on, because this is a term that is not understood, highly debated, what does this mean? Why would, and the question always is, why would these be addressed to an angel? And I pointed out that if you don't have the framework of the angelic conflict to understand this, then you don't really, uh, can't really see why an angel would get this information. And that these angels functioned as officers of the court, the Supreme Court of Heaven, as recording angels who were witnessing what was going on in the local churches and recording how they were doing in terms of obedience, disobedience, spiritual growth, etc. And then this would be presented as evidence in the uh, trial of Satan. And the Lord Jesus Christ is evaluating these churches, and this evaluation is being posted to these angels because, as we see in the book of Revelation, one of the primary responsibilities of angels is to execute the judicial pronouncements that come from the Supreme Court of Heaven. So if these congregations fail to respond to the warning that was present in these, these short epistles, then it would be the responsibility of the, of the angel to finally execute judgment. This, of course, is what happened in Ephesus. Ephesus continued to be a, a healthy congregation as a whole, the congregations in Ephesus provided a solid witness for the next two or three centuries, but that began to wane by the 5th century. In the 5th century there was a church council of Ephesus that that met there and uh, was part of the process of articulating the Uh, the doctrines related to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and the hypostatic union. There's a whole chain of church councils from the Council of Nicaea through the Council of Constantinople, then the Council of Ephesus, and finally culminating in the Council of uh, Chalcedon. And these were the councils that formulated the understanding of the relationship between the humanity of Christ and the deity of Christ. But after that period the church began to get involved in various different uh, heresies and problems, and eventually the, the, the Lord disciplined the congregation as he does through natural means. There's a lot of different ways in which the Lord uh, brings discipline on a congregation. And so through the natural means of the silting in of the harbor, which destroyed their economic base and various earthquakes, the area became uninhabitable. And so the population moved away, and the city of Ephesus no longer had a witness. Now, as we get into the first verse, we read, To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says, and this is a specific statement, a technical articulation in the Greek. Literally, it's tade lege from lego, meaning uh, I say. And it says, These things... And this formula is used to introduce an authoritative pronouncement. It's only found eight times in the entirety of the New Testament. The seven of those eight are in these short epistles. And the one outside of Revelation is found in Acts 21 Eleven. When Agabus says these things, says the Holy Spirit. So they they introduce a formula. Now this this phrase was also used in secular literature by the kings of Persia whenever they were making official pronouncements, and it was used in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. This was a, a the translation or the formula used in. Uh, by the Old Testament prophets whenever they uh, set forth an authoritative statement from God. So this is not just some phrase that makes sense here. It ha- It's rich with power and authority. When you have the phrase, these things says he, this is an authoritative pronouncement from the Supreme Court of Heaven. It is a legislative decree. These things says, and then we have a reference to two aspects of the vision of the Lord Jesus Christ seen by the Apostle John in the, uh, in the first chapter. These things says, first of all, he who holds the seven stars in his right hand. Secondly, the one who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Now, this first statement, he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, is a slightly different, Different version of what we read in chapter 1. If you look over to chapter 1 and you look at about verse 16, we read, He had in his right hand seven stars. That's a New King James translation and the verb there's the verb echo which simply means to have or to hold and so it's a simple statement that he had or he held he had in his right hand the seven stars the verb that is used here is a much more powerful verb it is uh it it's used in its participial form to indicate an individual it's used as a substantive the one who holds from the verb krato which means to hold something with authority. Now, what's he holding in his hand? He's holding the seven stars. What's he walking in the midst of? He's walking in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. The seven lampstands, we know from the first chapter, represent the seven churches. The the, the stars are completely distinct from the seven churches. It's a completely different set of images. And the idea here is that he holds And controls or has authority over the seven stars and the seven stars are the seven angels. So the conclusion is that this represents the judicial authority of the Lord Jesus Christ over the angels who are observing these churches. Jesus Christ controls history. Jesus Christ is the one, according to John chapter five, He is the one to whom God the Father has now delegated judicial responsibility. And so, as part of his responsibility as the high priest judge, he is <clears throat> in control of the functions of the courtroom and he is executing present time evaluation on local churches. This includes. Discipline as well as blessing. And that's the function of the second Im- imagery here, that he's the one who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Seven lampstands represents the church. And this shows that Jesus Christ, even though he is, he is <coughs> seated at the right hand of God the Father, he is in the, the, the present period, is known as the session from the Latin word sesiona, meaning to be seated. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. And that refers to the position of His humanity, that it is in a passive waiting position, awaiting the Father's answer to His prayer that's stated in Psalm 2-7, awaiting the answer to His prayer to give Him the kingdoms. Now, we're going to get into all the details of that when we go through the first chapter of Hebrews. It is just a phenomenal study in the first chapter of Hebrews and later in Hebrews to focus on the present session of Christ. That's the background to, to the whole book of Hebrews. And again and again, the writer of Hebrews is emphasizing what Christ is doing in the present session. And part of that includes his intercessory ministry for the church. But another aspect of that is his active involvement in evaluating the church and overseeing the, uh, the in-history in judgment on local congregations because Jesus Christ is involved in preparing us as the bride of Christ to prepare us for the judgment seat of Christ and to prepare us to rule and reign with him. So what we see here is a picture of, of his active, ongoing involvement in local churches. So he is walking in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, and it is from this vantage point that he is able to execute judgment on each congregation. So we see a direct involvement. Jesus isn't just off somewhere. Don't you think that, that He's off sitting at the right hand of the Father and somehow it's all related to the Holy Spirit. This is a picture of our Lord being actively involved in every congregation. This means that the formation of a local congregation is a serious task. And at the starting point of this congregation, the beginning of our history, we need to realize how serious this is. And how significant this is, not just in history, but in terms of our own preparation for that future role to rule and reign with Jesus Christ. And that Jesus Christ is intimately involved in the formation and outworking the congregation. So this isn't something that just happened. We may may look at the human circumstances, but God has a plan and a purpose in this local church. Now, in Revelation 2, verse 2, we see the beginning of this evaluation. Jesus says, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. Now, part of the problem that we have here is that the English has broken this up into a couple of different sentences, which makes it seem as if different thoughts are being expressed here. But actually, this is all one sentence in the Greek. The reason I make that point when I teach pastors uh, how to get into the Greek, how to do Bible study, one of the things I tell them to do is that you need to find out where the basic thoughts are within a within a passage. That the basic unit of thought is a sentence, and you can tell where the sentences are in Greek just from a study of the of the syntax. You don't have Punctuation in the Greek, like you do in English, but most of the Greek texts are have punctuation inserted in them, and they 're fairly consistent because if anybody has spent considerable amount of time studying studying Greek, you can spot where the sentences are, even if the sentence goes on for uh, seven or eight verses. Now, the problem that you have with the King James version and, and that really set a standard for for many English versions, is that King, the King James translators try to make each verse an independent sentence. Now think about that. If you have a sentence, for example, Ephesians 2, 1 through 7 is one sentence in the Greek. It's four sentences in some English versions. It's as many as seven sentences as other English versions. So in the Greek, Paul's expressing one thought with a lot of subordinate ideas. But if you base your study on English, you think he's expressing seven thoughts. That's quite a difference. So we have to be careful and always look at the basic structure of the underlying Greek text. That's why it's important to have a pastor who has some working knowledge of Greek and Hebrew, and we have to keep that standard high. And that's part of a sort of an underlying application in this first section of this uh, this message to Ephesus. so Jesus starts off with the sentence with the statement, "I know your works," and I know is based on the Greek verb oida and and it is a perfect active indicative as i've indicated on the screen now oida is one word for knowledge. You have two basic words for knowledge in Greek, oida and gnosko. Now, this isn't a Greek class, but you have to understand these distinctives. Oida is almost consistently used with reference to Jesus' omniscience, the omniscience of God. It's not an acquired knowledge. It is almost an intuitive knowledge. So when you read that Jesus knows something, oida, there's a reference there to omniscience. And so this is of course speaking of the deity of Christ as opposed to the humanity of Christ and Jesus in his omniscience knows everything there is to know about us. He is the one who walks in the midst of the congregation. He knows all of our good points, all of our bad points. He knows all of our motivations. He knows, there's no secrets hidden from the Lord Jesus Christ. He is fully aware of every thought, he's aware of every deed, he's aware of every action, he's aware of every motivation. Uh, every sin. Therefore, he is qualified to judge us. We can't pull the wool over his eyes. Not only that, but having been in his humanity, as we'll see in our study of, of judges, he is a peer. He has been tested in all points as we are, yet without sin. So he knows the church. He starts off and he, he uses this verb, oida, and it's a perfect active indicative. Now, the reason that's important is the perfect tense indicates completed action. The emphasis is in a a perfect tense of this type is on the present results of completed action. So he has always known everything there is to know about this congregation. Everything there is to know about the Ephesian congregation. He doesn't learn anything new. There's no surprises. You don't sneak up on him. You don't uh, try to... uh, rationalized behavior or anything. He always known everything there is to know. The active voice indicates that Christ performs the action. The indicative mood presents the uh, situation as that of reality. He is the all-knowing, all-seeing judge. He knows, next, your works. This is the Greek noun, ergon. The plural form of the noun is usually used in scripture to indicate lifetime production it's not uh, necessarily a word that i mean within itself indicates either human good or divine good it is a word that just expresses overall production in the life of a believer ergon is mentioned in each of the seven letters to the seven churches and each one of them begins with this statement, I know your works. I know your works. Now, if, you're, if you use a New American Standard or you use an NIV or one of the other modern translations based on the Westcott-Hort theory of textual criticism, then you will find in, in your version that there's no mention of works in either the epistle to, the, uh, to Pergamum or the one to Smyrna. They won't have that. But the majority text has it present in all of its manuscripts, and I believe that is a superior, now I'm getting off into textual criticism, that's a superior theory of textual criticism that really wasn't developed until about the last, oh, 40 years or so, 40 or 50 years. Some of it was done much earlier, but it really came together in the 50s and 60s, and I believe that's a better theory than the one that is used that underlies the other versions. Now, the reason I say that is I'm not saying that the King James is a better translation. I'm not saying that the TR was better. The TR, which was the Greek uh, manuscript that uh, was the basis for the translation of the King James, was compiled from only about eight or nine uh, Greek manuscripts by Erasmus in the in the early 16th century, Erasmus was a great foe of uh, of Luther in the debates over justification by faith. But he was a extremely competent Greek scholar, and he put together this text that became the foundation for the King James. Now, there's a difference between the TR, which is how we usually refer to the Textus Receptus, and the majority text. There's over uh, 1,800 differences between those two manuscript traditions. And uh, and it's important to, to, I always make that caveat, I'm not a King James only guy, I'm not talking about the TR, I'm talking about the majority text. And in Revelation, as we go through this, we will see that there are a tremendous number of places where we have to stop and talk a little bit about textual criticism. Because if you're using a New King James Version, it will have one thing. If you're using a New American Standard, it will... Uh, have something else in a few places are excluded. And this is one example. And in uh, five of these epistles, the phrase, I know your works is present, but in two it's left out. But it's only left out in two or three of the oldest manuscripts. And then people say, well, doesn't that mean it should be there? Oldest is best? Well, think about it this way. Let's say you have a fourth century document. It's written about three, copied about 350. But it's in an area where, for some reason, there's been theological problems or the copyist isn't real particular, he's not real careful. And so error somehow entered into whatever he copy, he's making his copy from. So he's got a flawed document. Then you have, in another region, for example, up in the area of Turkey, Asia Minor, or Greece, you have discovered the oldest document you've got is 8th century, 400 years later. So you say, okay, I've got a a document from 350 and I've got another copy from from uh, 750 or 850, 750. What's the difference? Why can't I go with the older one? Well, what if the document from 750 is an accurate copy of a document from 200 and the 350 copy is a bad copy of something from, let's say, 300? Now your more recent manuscript is really based on a superior. It's a superior copy of a superior original. So now oldest isn't best. So that was the flaw that entered into thinking on manuscripts in the 19th century was that oldest was better because they were suddenly discovering all these ancient documents. Tischendorf discovered the the codex up at up at Saint Catherine's. Uh, On Mount Sinai, you had the discovery of uh, the the, uh, manuscript in Vaticanus, uh, in the Vatican, and all these different ancient uh, manuscripts were discovered, and people just got all excited about it and said, oh, this must be best. If any of these two or three documents agree, that must be what the original was. Well, there's tremendous flaws now in that whole theory, and it's uh, what, what you'll usually find is some sort of eclectic thing. But anyway, that goes way beyond what most of us are interested in right now. But I wanted to explain why there are some difference here differences here. And I go with the majority text and this preface, I know your works, is a summary. Jesus is saying, I know everything that's going on in that congregation. Now we're going to expand it. Now, as we look at what comes, it, there are three groups of two that are linked together. First of all, there's a positive statement. I know your labor, and I know your endurance. This is followed by a second couplet. I know you can't bear evils, bastadzo, you can't put up with or endure evils or evil people. We'll have to analyze that. And you have tested their claims and found them liars. That is, these were men who claimed to be apostles and they were being evaluated by the local congregation. That's our basis for evaluation and ordination. Someone claims to have the gift of pastor-teacher isn't enough. There has to be a history. There has to be analysis. Can this guy teach? Has anybody heard him teach? Has anybody watched him teach? What kind of training does he have? Has he been to seminary? We have to keep the standard high. Now, I've always made it a point in my... Career to follow the principle that I'm not going to ordain someone unless they have uh, received some level of formal education. Now, that doesn't mean they have to go through seminary, that, that's ideal, or Bible college, but they have to have some formal training where they're involved in the academic discipline of a classroom where there's interaction with different views. It's just training ground. That is as important to the training of a pastor As going through boot camp is to the training of a soldier. Uh, How many of us would think it was a wise idea to just put some new recruit in a uniform and put him in his unit without going through basic training? We wouldn't think that was a wise idea at all. How many times, how many people would want to put a uh, rookie police officer out on the street without running him through the academy? Well, you wouldn't do that. But how many Christians are out there ramming some guy into a pulpit and he's never been to school? This is ridiculous. You require more to certify the guy who works on your plumbing under your sink than some churches require their pastor. And the result of that is that we just have a mess in so many churches and so many congregations. We have to hold the standard high. I remember when I was in seminary studying church history and reading stories about the itinerant preachers that went out through the West during the frontier days of America and they carried their Greek and Hebrew Bible in their saddlebags and they would go into churches and that's all they would have is their Greek text or their Hebrew text. They weren't preaching from a King James Bible, they were preaching from the Greek text. And the standard was held high. My first church, which was down in Lamarck, Texas, just just on the mainland from Galveston, was an old union church. Nobody knows what an old union church is anymore, but that was what, what they were before they were called community churches. And you didn't have enough people in a new community to have a Baptist church or a, a congregational church or a, a Methodist church or Presbyterian church, so you would have a union church. And that meant that the pastor had to be willing to... to uh, Baptized infants, if he didn't believe in bapti- uh, infant baptism, he would bring somebody in who would do it. He would, he would, in other words, respect the different denominational backgrounds of the different people. The pastor that had been there for 40 years was a graduate of Moody Bible Institute in about 1926. And then in 1931, he graduated from Austin Presbyterian Seminary, which was at that time a solid Presbyterian school. And Harry Birch was just one of these godly old saints, and by the time I showed up down there, he had been retired for ten years, and and he was in his late 70s. And Harry and I were talking one day, and I said, well, Harry, what would you have to do to be ordained? And he said, well, the presbytery had a qualification. You had to know Greek and Hebrew, and I had to take written exams in Greek and Hebrew before I could be ordained. Now think about that. That doesn't happen anymore. We've lowered the standard. And so we wonder why there's so much garbage coming out of the pulpits in this country. It's because churches are ordaining anybody who comes along and claims they have a a gift of pastor, teacher, or they're just getting out on their Internet and ordering up their own ordination. It's just crazy. We've lowered the standard. But the early church in Ephesus was a church that, evaluated, tested the claims of men who claimed to be an apostle, and by application, we could apply that to uh, pastor teachers. So they couldn't bear evils or evil people, as we will see, because of what they taught, and they tested, that is, they evaluated their claims and found them liars. And then the third couplet emphasizes their growth and their maturity. They have endurance. It's not saying you endure with a verb. It is a noun. They have, they possess endurance, and have persevered because of Christ's name. That is, orientation to Christ and His character. We'll come back and look at these commendations in more detail next Sunday night with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank You for this opportunity to study Your Word this evening, to focus on the fact that you are observing us, we're being observed by the angels, and the Lord Jesus Christ is evaluating us. And the issue is a high standard, and we must all meet that standard. It's not a matter of personal judgment. One person observing somebody else is a recognition that we are being observed by our Lord, and we are in training now for future responsibilities. Father, we also recognize that there may be someone here this Evening that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny. All this talk may be somewhat confusing to them. Well, the issue for you is the issue of the cross. What do you think about Jesus Christ? The issue is your eternal life, your eternal salvation. And that is a simple response. It's a simple gift. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. So that you can have eternal salvation as a free gift by simply putting your faith alone In Christ alone, simply believing that he died on the cross for your sins. Father, we pray that uh, we might be responsive to the challenge from the teaching of your word this evening, that we might not take lightly our spiritual life, our spiritual advance, but recognize that this has implications for each one of us for all eternity. We pray this now in Christ's name. Amen.